Guys, I'm suffering right now. I'm suffering from playmaking withdrawal. I gotta get to a field and make a play. I gotta get on a soccer field, a football field, anything. And I gotta make a play. This is deep, deep withdrawal. Quarantine life, you know, I'm starting to adjust to it. It's fine. It's, it is what it is, right? But I need to go make a play. I miss being out with friends or, you know, even with my dad on Saturdays and just, just kicking a ball around or catching passes on Sundays during, you know, pickup football. I miss all that. I miss my friends, stuff like that. But again, if we keep doing the right things, we stay at home, we check in with family, we check in with friends, you know, just do the right things. Keep the positive, you know, attitude, things like that. We'll get through this sooner rather than later. So here's hoping. Welcome to another episode of District Divided. I'm your host, Amit Singh. This week, interviewed Aaron Berkabile, who is a registered nurse and clinical instructor down south in Alabama, and she's actually in a COVID-designated unit right now. So it was a very fun and informative interview, and I definitely learned a thing or two during it. I'm going to be talking about a couple Redskins scenarios. I was thinking more about the Kyle Allen trade and how it solidifies Dwayne Haskins as the starter. Or does it? And I'm not talking about Kyle Allen being the starter either. I am getting back into what if the Redskins do draft Tua? Is it possible that they trade Dwayne Haskins beforehand or on draft day? So we'll get into that a little bit. We'll even talk about some of the potential draftees for the Redskins because the draft is like two weeks away, basically. April 23rd, 24th, and 25th, all seven rounds are occurring. So we'll be talking a little bit about that. And then we're going to wrap it up with ridiculous sports that no one knows exists. One example being chess boxing. Yep, you heard it here first, apparently. So we're going to get into all that. And right now we're going to kick it off with the Aaron Berkabile interview. This was done via Skype. So there are a couple moments where the connection just sort of drops. I did a little bit of editing here and there, but I also didn't want to over edit and just take away from what she was saying. So I'm going to give it to you basically as raw as it is. So there are a couple moments where maybe you'll be like, wait, what happened? I can't hear anything. Relax. It's fine. The drop is for a couple seconds maximum. Overall, it is a very informative and very solid interview given by Aaron. And so with that, again, just kick back, relax, and enjoy the interview. All right, so the next guest on District Divided is a registered nurse and clinical instructor in Alabama. Name is Erin Berkabile. Erin, how are you doing today? I am doing great. How are you doing? I am doing great, thank you. Things are uh, still a bit weird here in D.C., but uh, starting to adjust to the new normal a little bit. How are things where you are? It just doesn't feel real. It feels like we're in a movie. Yeah, yeah. If you could pick a movie, which movie would you say it's we're in right now? Oh dear, I don't know why. I mean, this is taking it to like the biggest extreme right now. But <laughs> a scene from I Am Legend just came in my mind where it's okay. just like it's just Will Smith walking through Times Square, 
I mean, that's how vacant it should look, honestly. Jeez. <laughs> well, yeah, I don't think it's far off from the truth. It's kind of sad, but, you know, it is what it is, and we're taking it in stride. But, you know, you, you're a registered nurse. You are in a COVID-designated unit, if I'm not mistaken. So what does that mean? We've heard about these all over the country. What is a COVID-designated unit exactly? So the whole purpose of having a COVID-designated unit, or what we call a cohort unit, is trying to prevent spread as much as possible. I mean, we know very little right now about coronavirus, but one thing we do know is how extremely contagious it is. And we know it can live in the air. I mean, I, I hear different numbers all the time, but the last I heard was it can live in the air for like three hours, which that's different from, you know, flu, because typically flu is on surfaces. Whereas now we're dealing with something we know can live in the air and on surfaces. So to try to keep the spread down within our hospitals, we designated my unit. And the reason mine was chosen is because I work for the largest ICU in my hospital. And we have three free pods. And what we can do is we can actually pod and we can kind of where the airflow is, it's not spreading into the other pods. And therefore, we can house um, COVID positive patients or what we call PUIs, um, person under investigation. And that is someone we are actively testing for COVID. We treat them like they're positive. We treat them like they have it. We can house these patients in these locked off pods and we're not worried about this air traveling to other patients' rooms that we know don't have it. Um, so that was the whole purpose of this, is to try to prevent spread as much as possible. Um, so right now, which my hospital has changed its protocol, we are now, any patient we get in to the hospital, if they're, if they're requiring intensive care, we test them for COVID-19 and they are sent up to my unit. It's pretty much they're um, guilty until proven innocent. We keep them until they test negative. Whenever they test negative, we can pass them on to wherever they need to go out of our unit. Um, but we pretty much just, we got lucky. Yeah. Okay. So does that mean, so it sounds like it's going to be a mix of COVID positive patients as well as those who might be. Are there any other uh, people in there as well that treated for other things or is it specifically only COVID? So we do, we have, like I said, three sides. We have what we call A, B, and C side. A and B, we have dedicated to COVID and to PUIs. Our C side has kind of become what our old ICU was. Like it's it's our specific patient population. Um, just your kind of regular ICU patients, there's no concern for COVID. And that C side's a little, even a little bit further off from the other sides. And so it's really, it's got good distance. Um, so that is where we, we are still having normal ICU patients. But the thing is, is there's a lot less ICU patients in the hospitals right now, primarily because we have shut down all elective surgeries. And a lot of patients in that fresh postoperative period require ICU care. And because we're no longer having all of these surgeries, we have a lot less um, ICU population. 
So therefore, we can kind of house all of those regular patients in a smaller um, amount of rooms because we just don't have as many. Like we went from being a 36-bed unit that was completely full to now if you put away the COVID and PUIs, I mean, we would have like 14 patients. Wow. Okay, cool. So it sounds like there's still a decent balancing act going on, especially with the uh, loss of elective surgeries for the time being. So that's good to know. So you have A and B, and so that's where COVID positive and potential positives are being handled. Is that correct? Yes. Okay. So we've also heard about mass shortages, you know, when listening to either social media or CNN or, you know, MSNBC, Fox, even at times, is that the case where you are uh, in your hospital or is that not the case? I mean, I wouldn't, I don't know if I'd call it a shortage yet because we still do have the mask we need. Now we are prolonging the use of them. Whereas the, I don't know if you've heard of the N95 mask, that is what we wear for COVID, for our PUIs and our COVID positive. We wear that mask because it creates a seal around your nose and your mouth. And the 95 comes from, it's supposed to block like 95% of like airborne particles. And before when we would have patients that required that mask, we would put one on, go in the room. When we come out, we throw that mask away. Well, now we're having to make one mask last a whole, sh- last a whole shift, a whole 12 hour shift. Wow. Um, and even then we're not throwing it, away, throwing it away because now there's been some new studies. There's still not a lot of evidence to support it, but there's enough to make it hospital practice. We are now sterilizing these again so we can reuse them we're doing that um by using aerosolized hydrogen peroxide and uv light i don't really know the science behind all of it but apparently that's enough to kill viruses and bacteria and they're repackaged and we're using them again um so i mean we do have what we need now i mean we are changing practices to pro like so we can you know we so we don't run out um, so it's not that bad yet to wear, you know, we're having to wear bandanas at work. Yeah. Okay. That's good. And as far as, I mean, some of the hot spots like California and New York, I don't think I've had some of my, uh, friends that are travel nurses go and work there and they haven't mentioned being short to where they're having to use, uh, methods like that either. They are still getting the protective equipment they need. We're just prolonging their use. I see. Okay. Well, so it's good that you're not using bandanas, as you said, especially uh, with the 95 and N95 standing for, you know, blocking 95% of these air particles. And you had said earlier that COVID could last in the air for up to three hours, right? Right. Wow. So then these N95s are needed. I hope you guys are at the point where, you know, you can just have a fresh one for each patient instead of for a single 12 hour shift and then having to sterilize it and use it again. So is there... So COVID, I mean, has been all over the place, again, all over the media and everyone's talking about it. Is there a clear way to tell the difference between, I've heard that it's, you know, the common cold for some, I've heard it's a, it's the flu for others or a stronger flu or stronger cold. Is there a way to differentiate between cold, flu and COVID? Or is it just, it can be anything because I've found many times where like, I'll wake up in the middle of the night and maybe my chest feels a little tight or I have a cough. I'm like, oh my God, I might have COVID. What, what is the situation there? Right. Well, the, 
it's so complicated because it does present very differently in people. But I feel like the most distinguishing factor it has, aside from what flu and the cold doesn't have, is it typically has a stronger effect on your respiratory status. A lot of people are noticing shortness of breath. And yeah, like with flu, you're going to kind of might have some junk in your lungs, might get out of breath a little bit quicker. But usually, I mean, if you're a relatively healthy individual, you're not breathing. Okay. Noticing with COVID has a much stronger impact on your respiratory drive. Uh, not your drive, per se, but just your ability. And a lot of patients are coming in, and yeah, they have a little bit of a cough, but honestly, I mean, you have season seasonal allergies, you might have a cough. It's kind of a bad time for it all, because there is a lot of other things that are causing, um, you know, like a runny nose or a cough right now. But I would say the most distinguishing factor is shortness of breath, really. Um, okay. that's what we see in a lot of these patients and really makes us think that and a fever, which I mean, you do see a fever with the flu as well. And so how would you describe that shortness of breath to people? Like, you know, is it something where for those who maybe have that some level of anxiety and they sort of feel chest tightness, is it sort of like that or is it different? Are you even able to explain what the shortness of breath may feel like to people? I, I actually think anxiety is probably one of the best ways um, to describe it. It is like, it's very similar to, it's kind of like rapid, shallow breathing. You know, the thought of like, I can't really catch my breath and I don't know why. Um, because I have had people describe it the same that have had COVID. They say it almost, they, at the beginning, they thought they were just having kind of like an anxiety attack and that they're having bad anxiety but it just continued on, persisted, and that required them to go um, get tested. But no, I think that would be a good way to describe it. Now, as far as you know, you have a history of anxiety and you're at home having shortness of breath as to how to tell if you're having an anxiety attack or if it's COVID, I don't really know if I could say much to that. Um, I really don't know. And that I would just look at other symptoms. You know, have you been staying at home? Do you have a fever? Do you have a cough? Um, things like that. Okay, cool. No, thank you for that information. And I'm assuming, and it sounds like you have also been tested for COVID. And I mean, being you know a nurse, I'm sure others have as well. What was the test like? So I got tested because, I mean... We, I was taking care of some patients that were, we thought were safe. You know, we didn't, they didn't show any signs or symptoms of it. And, you know, I think we're starting to learn a lot of these um, COVID patients are actually asymptomatic, which right now we're only testing, it's, it's changing. But before we were kind of only testing like our critical patients. And so that's why our numbers look so bad of mm. like, wow, these patients with COVID are really critical and requiring a lot of care have a test availability we're able to test more people out in the public in the community and we're realizing there's actually a good bit of people that have this but they're asymptomatic well we had some of those asymptomatic patients and they were just empirically tested it was kind of a randomized testing and they came back positive and i had been taking care of them i started developing a little bit of a fever a little bit of aches and so i had to fill out an exposure form for work policy and it required me to go be tested and that 
that really going to get tested it's a drive up um and there was a line and it was all by appointment but it was crowded and it took me at least like 30 minutes to get through the line just because there's so many people but it wasn't i mean it was amazing though seeing because i definitely they had to have had volunteers out there helping and it was great to see like the community come together but you go through and, you know, they're yelling at people because, you know, when someone comes up to your door, kind of your reaction is to roll your window down to talk to them. But that's the exact opposite of what you need to be doing. You know, you hear people yelling all the time, stop rolling your window down, please keep it up. And it's just you hold your driver's license to your window. They look at it, can, like confirm your appointment. They I don't know really what the lettering meant, but they like designated like a letter on your car. They like, wrote on your car. Um and then I drove through and saw a nurse practitioner and she called me and we spoke over the phone and she asked about like symptoms. Um, and she was just really kind and they were super great. And they asked where I worked. And when they heard the unit I worked on, they knew because they were part of my hospital's system. They knew that I was dealing with COVID patients and, you know, they were like, wow, bless you. And I'm like, here they are out in 85 degree heat you know, dealing with all these potentially sick patients. And here they are having compassion for someone else. Um, I mean, they were, it was just, it was just great seeing everyone come together. But then comes the fun part, which is how they actually <laughs> test for COVID, which there are two ways that I know of that we've been testing. And one is from a sputum culture, but the most common is a nasal swab. And this, I mean, it's really about the size of a q-tip just longer and they stick it about three inches up your nose what um if, if you've been tested for the flu it's kind of a similar process it's a deep nasal swab oh <laughs> they get it out there it feels like it's touching your brain oh my gosh um, and she counted to five which i'm pretty sure took her 10 seconds and the whole time they're just going in like a circular motion um well, you know how doctors are. I feel like, you know, that five count is never just five seconds, as you said. You got to know that. <laughs> oh, no, no, no. And the whole time they're just going, I'm so sorry. <laughs> and, but, I mean, they do what they have to do. But it was not very pleasant. Definitely had some uncontrollable tears coming out of an eye. <laughs> um, but they got the results. We're getting results a lot quicker than we used to. Before, I mean, it could take seven days before we found out. And now we're finding out within 24 hours, which is amazing. And so oh, I was that's negative, fantastic. Yeah. which was fabulous. Did you say you were negative? Sorry. I was negative. All right. All right. Excellent. Blessing. Yeah. And um, great. So you're negative. Congratulations. And may it stay that way. Now. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah because uh you know we we really need you and all the other nurses and doctors that are just putting in amazing hours right now now talking about social distancing so we're talking about staying six feet apart wearing your masks now now that the cdc is recommending it and i'm assuming you would recommend that to people listening as well um in birmingham how is seriously is social distancing being taken because i know that, um, again, if you look at the media, a lot of the stereotypes of the South are, you know, it's very religious and people are still going to services. Some churches are closed, but others are still welcoming people with open arms. How seriously is social distancing being taken where you are in Birmingham? 
I would say by business, fabulous. Um, like our essential stores, like grocery stores um, and things like that, they've done taking great steps to implement all of the social distancing. They're marking out um, spots that are six feet apart when you're waiting in line. They're wiping down buggies as soon as people come in and give or drop them off. Restaurants are offering, you know, all this curbside deliver, like pick up and they'll deliver. And, you know, they're not touching you anymore. They'll drop it off at your door. I feel like as far as like our businesses are doing, they're doing fabulous. They're doing everything they should. Now, as far as the general public, um, I mean, every time I like go to work or I have to run to the grocery store real quick, I mean, I see tons of cars on the road and I have no idea why there would need to be that many. And then at the grocery store, you just see families like mom and dad there with three or four kids. And I've even heard someone say, oh, we just had to get out of the house, you know, take the kids somewhere, which is the worst idea in the world, especially a grocery store. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so as far as the public is taking it, I don't feel like they're taking it as serious because it really hasn't hit hard here in Alabama yet, which I'm praying it won't. But since it hasn't, I feel like a lot are not taking it seriously. Um, and they think, oh, you know, it's just a bad cold or I'm kind of young and healthy. I'll be fine. There's definitely much room for improvement as far as the general public goes. But I do feel like our businesses are doing everything they can to help. Um, I mean, the hospitals are like ghost towns because hospitals have shut off visitation. Um, but everywhere else, you're bound to see way more people than you should. Gotcha. And I feel like I should have known this already and should have uh, researched this out. But is there a stay at home order in place in the state of Alabama right now or not yet? Yes, there is. That actually started, I think, Saturday night at five, Saturday or Sunday night at five, which we already had a shelter in place ordinance that was done like two weeks ago, I felt like. And, and um, this just makes it a little bit more official. Um, you can be fined. But once again, I have not been able to tell any difference. Um, <laughs> I mean, yes, there are people there following the but not as many as there should be. Okay. Okay. Well, now switching gears. And thank you so much for, you know, all that uh, information and firsthand experience um, you know, that you've done. But this is a sports podcast, first and foremost. So we can get to some more, uh, you know, relaxed, fun questions for you. Your favorite sports team, it can be pro, it can be college, it can be high school, I don't care. What's your favorite team? Ooh. It's a pretty close tie between okay. Auburn football and um, Braves baseball. I think I'm going to have to say Braves solely because I have followed them longer. Um, I really became more of an Auburn fan leading up to my like late college, uh, late high school years. And then when I went to college there, I've been Braves fan as, as long as I can remember, you know, my, me and my dad and siblings watching the games. So I'm going to say Braves. All right. All right. So Atlanta Braves, which I know we got a lot of Nats listeners, so they're not going to be particularly pleased with that, but uh, acceptable uh, for the time being. And who would you say your favorite pro athlete is? That's going to have to be Freddie Freeman. Freddie Freeman. All right. All right. Solid batter. Why? He, 
And, you know, I can say this, and I literally do not know the guy, but he seems so genuine. You rarely see him have, like, a terrible attitude on the field. Um, And then I always feel like I notice him doing stuff to give back to his community. Uh, Like, right now, he, I think he like, over $100,000 to help out Atlanta. Um, It was, like, their food kitchens and something else. I just feel like he's always giving back to such a nice guy. And I just want a Freddie hug so bad because he's always <laughs> hugging everyone. And I love that. I think when I truly realized I loved him was when Jones saved him. I don't know. This was probably like five, five-ish years ago, maybe more. Um, it was when we had, I think, really bad storms, maybe snow. And Freddie got stranded, and Chipper Jones came and picked him up on a four-wheeler. Oh, my God. I think I will remember that till the day I die. I loved it so much. And there's a picture of Freddie hugging Chipper Jones on the four-wheeler, and it's just adorable. <laughs> and so I'm assuming we could just Google this, like Freddie Freeman, Chipper Jones, four-wheeler storm or something like that. I'm just... sure you could, because I felt like I saw it everywhere. I also realize that's probably the longest Google search ever. So may- maybe cut down the words a little bit, but uh, wow. Okay. I-, I don't think I knew about that. And um, all right. Got to look it up. I-, I absolutely will. I absolutely will. So uh, feel free now to, this is your airtime. If you have anything you want to plug or anyone you want to shout out, this is your time. Go ahead. Well, I feel like it's very typical and cliche but i'm just gonna shout out all the other healthcare workers especially the ones that are working in those hot spots i'm i feel like i have it so easy and cushed right now um i'm not dealing with a lot of my covid patients dying because it hasn't really hit here yet but those people that are working in new york especially but california and washington um i mean they are really seeing the rough of it and i know it's got to be hard so i just want to thank everyone out there working so hard um they're amazing fantastic and uh aaron i just wanted to say on behalf of you know myself and everybody else uh you know if they were hosting this podcast or any podcast just thank you for what you're doing and you know all the healthcare workers that you work with and you know yeah all the ones in new york if any of them are listening or anything like that just we really, really appreciate it. We don't actually see the amount of work and patience and you know faith required to continue grinding day in, day out while there's so much uncertainty still surrounding this. So really appreciate your efforts and uh, just thank you so much. Well, thank you. Perfect. Well, thanks, thanks again for being uh, on the show. show. You're also our first uh, female guest so congratulations on that milestone as well yeah there we go okay i hope i uh can hold up a good standard (laughs) (laughs) well you know once we get uh once we get baseball back we will have you on to uh break down the braves for us when they're in town or when the nats are uh traveling over to atlanta how does that sound to you oh that's good any way i can talk about the braves beating the nats i will be so okay with I can't wait to get back to just simple trash talk and watching baseball and sports again. <laughs> it really is. America needs it right now, honestly. Yeah. Yeah. Well, 
on that note, Aaron, thank you so much. I really appreciate it once again, and just enjoy the rest of your evening. Well, thank you. You too. All right. Thanks. On to your Washington Redskins weekly update. I have a scenario for you guys this time. What if Kyle Allen was brought in to be the starter for now? Let's say the NFL season starts as scheduled, but training camp and other things cannot begin on time. Ron Rivera recently came out and said that he would feel comfortable starting Kyle Allen for a period of time and then seeing how it goes. So Ron is willing to do that. If Kyle played well, then would Dwayne become the starter again? Honestly, probably not. After all, Dwayne is not the guy that Ron drafted, so it's not like he owes him anything here. The point is that he is willing to start Kyle and, quote, see how it goes, end quote, which isn't necessarily a vote of confidence for either QB. The takeaway to me is that Ron is unsure of what he has a QB right now. You partnered this thought with the Redskins PR moves so far, and they do not seem interested in trading back. They've invited Dwayne Haskins to the draft party, in a move that perhaps suggests they don't want Tua, and they haven't leaked any reports, real or fake, about absolutely loving Tua, which would lead to an increased price for the number two overall pick. Ron Rivera at his most recent virtual conference said, If you're going to make a trade and you're going to go back, that guy you're going to take at that spot has to be able to make the kind of impact you need to validate missing an opportunity to take a player that's a high-impact guy. In other words, if you're going to pass up player A and you go back and you're going to take player D, player D has to be equal to player A because if player A is going to play for you for 10 years and player D may not, then did you really get value or did you just get a whole bunch of picks? To me, that sounds like they're very interested in staying at number two. They're not saying, oh, we absolutely love this guy. They haven't said that about either Chase or Tua, honestly. All signs seem to point to Chase, but this could be about Tua as well. We're talking about, you talk about a player staying for 10 years. J.P. Finley from NBC Sports Washington believes this all points to Chase Young. That quote above points to Chase Young. And again, I think this can easily point to Tua. Play for you for 10 years. Elite defensive ends and rushers don't necessarily have a reputation for sticking around for 10 years. If you look at Mario Williams... Jadavion Clowney, Khalil Mack. These guys are all on different teams. Mario Williams, of course, retired, but they've moved around. This isn't the era of Ray Lewis, Troy Polamalu, and Ed Reed anymore. Richard Sherman and Earl Thomas moved from Seattle. They had the Legion of Boom and they moved. Defensive players move around all the time, but quarterbacks, when they're legit, they last you 10 plus years. So when talking about that 10 years, lasting for 10 years, Maybe he's talking about Tua. Let's look at the 2016 first and second team all pro, just the edge rushers. Khalil Mack, Oakland, now with Chicago. Jadavion Clowney, Houston, now a free agent. Vic Beasley, Atlanta, now with Tennessee. Cameron Wake, free agent. Olivier Vernon, with the Giants, now with the Browns, Brandon Graham, Eagles. He is the only one that stayed. All of them switched teams except for Brandon Graham. That was four years ago. So you talk about a player staying for 10 years. Quarterbacks don't change teams if they're elite. The only ones this offseason are Tom Brady and Phillip Rivers, 
because they're in the final years of their careers, but each played at least 15 seasons with the Pats and Chargers, respectively. So as I pointed out earlier, it recently came out that Dwayne Haskins will be at the Redskins draft party. So that surely means that they're not going to take Tua, right? Well, two things. One, Mike Glennon was under that impression when he signed a three-year, $45 million deal to be the Chicago Bears starting quarterback, only to be invited to their draft party and watch the Bears move up one spot from three to two, and they gave away their number three overall pick, their third round pick, fourth round pick, and a third round pick the next year, an enormous amount to trade to move up one spot with the San Francisco 49ers, and they drafted Mitch Trubisky, quarterback. They were willing to do it. So don't put it past this organization to do the same. Him being at the draft party does not mean anything. And there's also the other possibility, which is that Dwayne could be traded before the draft, and he certainly wouldn't be at the draft party then. If you're worried about Tua's hip, but you believe he's truly elite, well, with the Kyle Allen trade, you have all the time in the world. You can make sure he rehabs properly and is 100% for this season or next season or whenever it may be. And when his moment comes and you think he's going to be elite, you've got that guy for 10 plus years that Ron Rivera is talking about. Now, I still think that all signs point to Chase Young. It still logically makes a lot of sense to take a guy that's being compared to absolute elite talents, right? But when talking about high-impact guys, Tua definitely falls into that category. Again, I have that episode, I think it's episode three, where I talk about why the Redskins should take Tua Tagovailoa. I initially thought the Kyle Allen trade ruled that out. I'm now beginning to think, given that we could have a curtailed season, and given the quotes from Ron Rivera about being willing to start Kyle Allen, I'm starting to think there's a lot more uncertainty than we know about. It's going to be a very interesting two weeks ahead, and it's not over just yet. The draft is going to be very, very exciting. Folks, let me tell you, there are a number of ridiculous sports on this planet, and I had heard of none of them, and I'm willing to bet you've heard of maybe one, but probably none of them. So let's just get straight into it. We begin with Sipak Takrao. It's 3v3 soccer volleyball, essentially. You're not allowed to use your hands or your arms. It's best of three sets, so you gotta win two, and a set is played to 21 points. You win by two. Well, how do you score a point? You want the ball, and it's a pretty small looking soccer ball made of plastic or, or softwood. You want it to fall into your opponent's box, essentially. So think of a volleyball court, the same way you would score in volleyball with the volleyball hitting the floor within the parameters of your opponent's space. That's how you get a point. You get up to three touches per side before having to send it over to the other side of the court. The only difference here, oh, again, besides the hands and arms not being allowed to be used, is a single player on your team can use all three of his team's touches. So if you're you know, in a bind or something like that because you're using your feet and maybe you take a bad first touch, you're allowed to take that second and third touch if you wanted to. It's a very athletic game. I was watching a few different videos on it and people are doing full on bicycle kicks and volleys and it is a very aggressive looking sport. It looks awesome, honestly. I can't wait to try that out. On to toe wrestling. The idea here is to link big toes up and just have at it. 
The object of the game is to pin your opponent's toe for three seconds, and this thing has grown in global popularity. It is increasing year after year. There are World Toe Wrestling Championships that happen. There was supposed to be one this year in June. Of course, it got canceled, but it is going pretty strong. There's a barrier about a foot away on either side of your feet so that if your big toe hits that side, if it's forced onto that side, that's considered a pin, so you end up losing that way. It's best of three, and it alternates from left foot to right foot or right foot to left foot. I'm not sure how they decide that, but there's a uh, judge or ref or arbitrator, whatever you want to call him, and the way they start the game is he yells, uh, toes away, and that's how you know to begin, and there are crowds that gather, and it's absolutely ridiculous. But maybe not as ridiculous as the man versus horse marathon. It originated in Wales to settle a pub argument in 1979. Who would win a marathon, a man or a horse? These two Welshmen wanted to find out. The marathon was then created. It's 22 miles instead of the 26.2 you're actually used to hearing about, so maybe that gives you a bit more of a shot. It takes place annually, and man has actually won twice over a horse. And if a human wins, the cash prize is $40,000, so you might as well just start training while you're in quarantine and get amped for that. Chess boxing. What a concept. Inspired by a 1992 French comic, Foi Equateur, I tried my best there, and then adapted by Dutchman Ipa Rubing in 2003. It's 11 rounds of alternating between chess and boxing. Six chess rounds, five boxing rounds. Each round is three minutes. Everything takes place in a boxing ring. So round one begins with chess. Both of you are in your boxing gear and you have nine minutes of chess time to play over the course of your six chess rounds. Chess is also played in the boxing ring, as I had said. So what they do is you're playing chess and after three real-time minutes, a bell is rung and they move the chess set as it is out of the boxing ring and you begin boxing for three minutes. You win by either checkmate or knockout. If a ref feels you're stalling during chess, so let's say you're whooping your opponent in boxing and think you can get a knockout next round, but you're losing in chess, so you wanna stall. Well, he's gonna say you can't do that. You get a 10 second warning to move, and if you don't, you're disqualified. If the game of chess ends in a draw, then an additional round of boxing is added, so a sixth boxing round. If no knockout in that sixth boxing round, then the person with more boxing points wins. So there are a series of judges that will determine the boxing points there. And if that is tied, then the player who played black in chess wins. So there's always a winner, always a loser. This sounds incredible. It's just mixing mind, body, spirit, all of it. Chess boxing, what an idea. On to tuna tossing. This originated in Southern Australia and fishing community of Port Lincoln. It uses a 20 pound fish and all the local fishermen are doing is seeing who could throw it the furthest. Simple as that. Think of it as like a hammer throw. So they have a piece of like string or something attached to maybe a hook on its mouth or something like that and they just let it rip. So this takes place annually as well in Port Lincoln. I'm not sure about its global popularity. They originally used just regular old fish, but now they've moved it over to rubber, but it's 20 pounds every single time. And it just sort of spices up life over there. And then finally, we have wife carrying. It's simple. Carry your wife faster than your opponent can. It's a race and it's a global game. And here in the States, we have state championships that you must win to qualify for the global championships. So there's actually a circuit here for qualification for wife carrying. 
And these are your six, I believe. Ridiculous, ridiculous sports that you have never heard of. And that'll just about conclude this week's episode. Thank you all for listening. Really appreciate it. Once again, our guest was Aaron Berkebile, a registered nurse and clinical instructor down south in Alabama. Thank you again for all the information there. And we had the Redskin scenario. Could Kyle Allen have been brought in to be the starter, knowing that we're going to end up drafting Tua? So something to think about there. Not saying it's going to happen. I still think they'll go chase Young. But something to think about because... When you look at some of the pieces, it is very plausible that they could end up drafting Tua there at pick number two. And then, of course, we had the ridiculous, ridiculous sports that no one knows exists. Adam Miller, thank you so much for that suggestion. If anybody else has any other sort of bit they want to hear next week, let me know. I have a Washington Redskins draft deep dive that we're going to get into because, again, the draft is right around the corner. And it's really the only sport going on outside of maybe a couple of those ridiculous sports that no one's ever heard of. So thank you all again for listening. And you know what it's time for. It's Polly Polo. I spent my whole damn life in the city. Anywhere I go, DC's coming with me. I spent my whole damn life in the city. I-